You're with Insight from RNZ. Kia ora, I'm Philippa Tolley, and this programme looks at how New Zealand cares for its veterans with PTSD. More than 140 Defence Force personnel are currently stationed at a dusty military base 30 kilometres outside of Baghdad. Their mission is to train local forces, but there's also a constant threat to their own safety. Just over a month ago, four Iraqi soldiers were killed in a suicide bomb attack outside the camp gates. Various research indicates up to 18% of the New Zealand contingent could return home with a post-traumatic stress injury. So what help is currently available for veterans with PTSD and what more can be done? And a warning, this programme does discuss suicide and could cause some people distress. I've lost my normality and PTSD and our daily struggles have now unfortunately become my reality. And it's, um, that's quite sad. Like, my life basically stopped. Nancy Blakey has never stepped foot in Afghanistan, but the six months her husband Bill spent deployed there have changed her life forever. It wasn't until a second suicide attempt was nearly successful that the true extent of his injury was revealed. Our whole lives have changed. He's not the same person I married 15 years ago, um, and I don't think I'll ever get that back. Bill Blakey and his family aren't alone. Described by the Returned Services Association as the signature wound of a generation, post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, is believed to affect between 12 and 18% of those deployed overseas. I'm Kate Pereira-Garcia, and this week Insight looks at the support available to contemporary veterans with PTSD and how it compares to what's on offer overseas. The Defence Force promises a lot to potential recruits. And for Bill Blakey, his 17 years serving both here and in Australia lived up to those promises. A nice little sheltered spot out here. He says being sent to Afghanistan in 2002 as the Deputy Director of Intelligence was the pinnacle of his career. But it was a challenge from day one. It was a new organisation that was set up by the Americans, which was separate to the International Security Force in Afghanistan. So that was a challenge in itself of just trying to get stand up an organisation, um, intelligence organisation in Afghanistan. What about some of the specific events that you went through over there that affected you when you came back? It was very intensive because um, whilst I was trying to set up that position, I actually had to do the role of intelligence. And there were some instances where um, I signed off intel intelligence for counterinsurgency operations, but unfortunately, you know, it's not a pure science, and unfortunately, it resulted in um, some civilians getting killed, and that played on my mind, but only for a very short time because I had to get back to work. There are other instances. Um, one which comes particular to mind is the organisation Doctors Without Frontiers. They were planning to go up into um, Western Province in, called Herat um, to do some work. They approached me through an NGO to get some intelligence to see whether it was a safe area. The area wasn't um, a safe area. There was no coalition forces, no Afghan forces, friendly Afghan forces. I briefed them as much as I could and said, look, you know, I don't think you should be going. Um, I can't tell you everything, but I strongly advise that you don't go. Um, but unfortunately, um, they did go. And there was a number of them, doctors, surgeons and support people 
were ambushed and killed and tortured. And when that got reported back to me, I felt a, a big burden of guilt. That, you Even know, though you'd told them not to go? Not to go. You know, could I have said anything more to actually persuade them? Um, it was a major incident in Afghanistan, in the Afghan um, period at that time that the Doctors Without Frontiers actually pulled out of Afghanistan after that incident. Was it a matter of it being, everybody being so new and there just wasn't the intelligence there at that time, or is that just how things are? That's just how things are in a war zone. Um, a lot of people, you know, have said, you know, Afghanistan was a peacekeeping operation. I'm, I'm afraid it's not a peacekeeping operation. It's a combat operation. And we do combat operations and we help with redevelopment. And the intelligence is not an exact science, as I said before. We had numerous um, sources for our intelligence and it was very, very good. But, you know, you can't get it right every time. Bill Blakey returned home at the end of 2004. The next year he was awarded a New Year honour for his work in Afghanistan. But even as he was being presented the award by the Governor-General, he was doubting the job he'd done. Disillusioned, that same year he left the Defence Force, but his downward spiral was only just beginning. He began drinking to cope with the constant nightmares and flashbacks. He was always alert to possible dangers and distanced himself from his family. He became angry for seemingly no reason and had bouts of depression. It was a slow-burning fuse and it sort of exploded in about 2012. What happened in 2012? It got to the extent where I was so dis disassociated with um, my family, um, not happy in life or anything like that, that I um, attempted uh, suicide twice, uh, two attempts on my life. Um, the second one, the first one was a little bit of a cry for help, but wasn't very successful, thank God. The second one was um, a major attempt, um, and it was only because my wife actually came home and found me, and we had a fireman living next door, and I ended up in ICU, but um, it was a 80-20 chance whether I'd make it through the night, but I did. At her office, Bill Blakey's psychologist, Jane Dine, says he's come a long way, but is still highly critical of himself and avoids dealing with some of the things he's been through. He's been able to confront a story in parts, so the uh, incident in Herat, where he was held hostage um, and threatened with his life, has, he's had to process and confront. So he can now go into rooms and sit in a room for a while without having to leave necessarily prematurely. Whereas when he first came back, sitting in a room was agony for him with other, other people, particularly other men. So he can often sit in rooms with other people. However, when he gets anxious, he cannot sit in a room with other people easily. He will often have to leave still. Driving on the streets, he um, was difficult, or walking in open streets was very difficult. It would trigger arousal, and he would often be hiding under the under doorways in, in the main street. The point of Bill Blakey's story is that it's not unique. While the specific details change, post-traumatic stress and other mental health injuries are perhaps the most prevalent issue for veterans who are no longer fighting in traditional wars. We remember those of our friends, family and New Zealand Defence Force personnel 
who stand today in respective theatres to provide the hope of safety, freedom and peace in places of turmoil. We also remember those New Zealanders who have fought in jungles, deserts, cities, rivers, mountains, and in the air, and seas around the world, down through the passage of time. Make us wise and strong, we pray, for the sake of their sacrifice and your sacred name. Amen. Following commemorations last month to mark the 50th anniversary of the Vietnam War, I spoke to the RSA's Manager of Support Services, Mark Compain. He says in the past the number of soldiers physically wounded dwarfed the less obvious mental health issues. And even in the, uh, the bloodletting of the First World War, the first industrialised war, um, on a grand scale, you know, 12 to 15 per cent um, of people who served became psychological casualties. And that percentage has, has, has remained pretty consistent over conflict since. There is a curious New Zealand character trait that seems to apportion validity to military service based on the number of casualties that you have. Now, we've already talked about the consistent percentage of psychological wounding that occurs regardless of conflict. People need to understand that war and conflict is a dirty business and it comes with a, with a, with a toll. And a conflict is not the same as what our grandfathers fought. There's no front line, there's no distinguishable enemy. And in fact, World War II veterans that I know very well have said to me, I don't think I would have liked your job because in our day it was easy. Jerry was across the river and he got it. Whereas, you know, we're constantly looking behind us and around us. So there is an education piece around that so that... People you know, understand that this is just not sending people away to dig wells, build schools, and that it's somehow uh, you know, a piece of cake and a walk in a park because it's not World War II. Well, that is completely erroneous. The challenge comes in how veterans, including those with PTSD, are treated once they get home. The Defence Force's own figures show there are 41 current cases of PTSD among serving personnel. Less than half are classified as being service-related. But the true extent of the problem isn't known because the majority of those suffering from PTSD or other mental health issues leave the Defence Force shortly after returning to New Zealand. Then their cases fall to a number of agencies, including Veterans Affairs, ACC, and non-governmental groups like the RSA or the recently formed NGO NoDuff. Aaron Wood is the head of NoDuff, a charity which involves veterans helping out their mates. He says once people leave the Defence Force, it has no contact with them. And while civilians say thanks once a year on Anzac Day, they pay no attention the rest of the time. So the whole reason that NODA started was a young veteran who was wounded in Afghanistan, who'd left the army soon afterwards. Uh, he was wounded in a bagac, actually. He was suffering uh, from PTSI. He'd uh, been through the VAN system, Veterans Affairs New Zealand. He'd been receiving contracted psychology, psychologist support. And his psychologist rang up Veterans Affairs and said, after seeing him at a session, and said, I have grave concerns for his well-being and his safety. So Veterans Affairs have a memorandum of understanding with the RSA because Veterans Affairs can't door knock. So an RSA welfare advisor was, was tapped. 
um, to go and try and find this guy and track him down because he was answering his phone, was answering text. He'd gone what we call dark on comms, and of course, when everyone starts cutting away, that's when you start getting worried about people. Um, the, the man himself rang up Vans and said, "Look, I don't want anything to do with the system anymore. Delete my file. I'm, I'm sick of it. Get rid of it." Uh, and then um, the the um, RSA welfare advisor uh, found another, basically a datum point of information um, that suggested that he was in trouble as well. So three datum points of, um, of, of information that uh, gave grave concern for his well-being and his safety. Uh, neither Vision Affairs or the RSA could find him. So Mark and Payne, the guy you interviewed just before, contacted me, um, and I'm a private citizen, uh, and said, do you think you can find him? I said, yeah, sure, I can find him. Within an hour and 50 minutes, we tracked him down. He was living rough in a park up in Auckland. We wrapped an ad hoc support network around him of guys we knew out of Papakura and Arch Hill, mates of ours. Uh, and the whole thing was done via Facebook. While the outcome in that case was positive, Aaron Wood figured if someone had slipped through the gaps once, it had happened before. Within a week, the No Duff group was formed. But the Defence Force's Chief Medical Officer says it's not always quite that simple. Wing Commander Paul Nealis concedes the number of serving personnel inside the Defence Force suffering from PTSD is likely higher than the official statistics of 41. And he says the number of people with adjustment disorders is even greater, probably in the hundreds, if not thousands. The expertise in PTSD in a military context exists within the NZDF. It doesn't exist um, to a great extent out in the public health system because we're a long way away from major conflict now. Um, so that the experience that used to exist in the public system post-Vietnam or post the Second World War isn't there now. What we're starting to do is realise that if the numbers are greater than we have um, on paper, then actually our internal resources probably aren't enough to deal with every single case. So we need to go into partnership with the public sector and with the private sector to produce a kind of New Zealand Inc. response to this. Wing Commander Nealis says PTSD from service is considered a workplace accident and therefore covered under ACC, the same as it would be for any other New Zealander. PTSD is not unique to veterans or military personnel. As most people are expected to suffer a traumatic incident at some stage in their lives, it can strike anyone. It's prevalent among sexual assault victims, emergency service workers and for Cantabrians following the Christchurch earthquakes. Wing Commander Nealis says part of the problem with identifying and treating veterans with PTSD is a lack of information. We're building a framework as a kind of subset of the national health IT piece, which allows us at um, GP to GP level to start sharing more information. Um, but doing this within appropriate privacy controls for the individuals as well. The other part is, for instance, suicide statistics. Other Western countries have a requirement for post-service suicides to be reported both back to the Defence Force but also um, into the national statistics. In our case we don't. Um, there is feedbacks there that we need to start formalising. So I guess from that, are we, if we can get the information quickly for the physical and not for the mental injuries, are we giving them the same status, I guess? It's not so much status, it's, it's a reflection of the burden in the system. 60% um, of my workload is then musculoskeletal. And so a lot of the study around that at the moment is to try and reduce the rate of physical injury. 10% of our presentations are around mental health, um, of which the vast majority sit in the relationship, sort of social issues um, type area. And the service mental injury group is a much smaller component of that. It's not that it's not given the same status, it's trying to um, apply a relatively limited resource to where it's going to have most effect in the short term. 
A major point of contention is the range of treatment options available for people suffering from PTSD. The options in New Zealand are centred around cognitive behavioural therapy or counselling, eye movement therapy and prescription drugs. Internationally, the options are much more varied. From drumming and other music therapies to PTSD dogs and group therapy sessions specifically for veterans. Such government-funded group programmes are commonplace in Australia, but aren't available here. Bill Blakey was turned down by government agencies when he applied for funding to attend one. He turned to the public and raised more than $45,000 on Give a Little to help fund a course in New South Wales. He's at the course this month. Have you or a loved one been suffering from anxiety, depression, drug or alcohol addiction, an eating disorder or any other psychological issues? You don't have to go through it alone. The Geelong Clinic Edmund Van Ammers is the director of the PTSD program at the Geelong Clinic south of Melbourne. He says the group atmosphere suits veterans and while his 14-week course is only the start of the process, he has seen long-term gains. Some veterans do better than others. Because I've been doing this for so long, I follow up veterans or I see veterans who've been in the program and some of them have done it 10 years ago and you see this improvement over the years that follow. You know, you, you can't realistically put people through a program and say, right, you're all fixed. You're back on civilian street, it's all gone away. It's, it's the start of a process. But if you look at the longer term trajectory and two to three years, it, it's really very pleasing to see the, the progress that veterans make. Dr Van Ammers says there's no practical reason why New Zealand veterans couldn't attend the Australian programs. But the Minister of Veterans Affairs, Craig Foss, says while we share information about PTSD with our allies, the treatments offered must be clinically proven. We wouldn't want our veterans to be guinea pigs for a start. You know, we wouldn't want the minister, the person in my role, deciding what treatment should happen or not. That would be a very slippery and dangerous path to go down. Um, and if a trial's happened somewhere else and they've got great results in whatever field it might be, not we can extend a bit on veterans' affairs, you know, goodness gracious, this happens in health all the time, um, then officials in New Zealand pick that knowledge up. For example, things they're doing in Australia, you know, they don't have a no-fault ACC system in Australia. Um, they don't, you know, their, their health system is different to ours and responsibilities are different to ours by state. Can you understand, though, the frustration of some veterans if they've been through everything that's available to them here through the systems that, that are provided mm. and they still haven't they haven't got to a point where they're back in the workforce or back in what would, sure. they would call you know, I real living? I can understand um, that, that frustration, but I also, you know, there's many, many services um, and different ways of... Um, of, tre of treatment or counselling, whatever you m might want to call it, available in New Zealand. Yes, there may be something new and different somewhere else. Uh, Veterans Affairs New Zealand, Defence New Zealand and uh, the Ministry of Health are forever on the lookout for treatments, be whatever they are, to help people, but they have to be clinically proven treatments and that's up to the medical professionals and the scientists to decide. Craig Foss says Veterans Affairs exists to help veterans navigate through the different government departments. He says recent veterans often don't claim the title of veteran because they don't think it applies to them. But Mr Foss says anyone suffering from PTSD will receive the same treatment. Even if something presents itself which is not due to someone's service, we have a fantastic health system and an ACC system which recognises these um, injuries regardless of how or when they occurred 
And as a society, you know, we have all these things in place to assist people through that. A 2011 report by the former Australian Centre for Military and Veterans Health found that although there was no systematic research to support PTSD group treatment programs, there was strong and reasoned evidence suggesting they achieved better results than individual treatment alone. However, some clinical psychologists here are cautious about the lack of randomised controlled testing on the efficacy of such treatment. Hi, I'm here to Ian De is a former police detective, now a senior lecturer at Massey University, focusing on work-related trauma. Until I saw some evidence, I'd be cautious about the group therapy. There are some group therapies that would work with different range of difficulties, but until I saw some sort of light scientific sort of evidence, I'd be um, a little bit sceptical about whether group therapy was the best way to treat it. And it's really hard unless you're talking on an individual basis, I'm talking, obviously I'm talking here on global type um, areas. In, in New Zealand probably it's it's about, it's dollars and cents, you know, um, and where things are directed. And I don't think we need more money. I think just needs to be more, money needs to be um, proportioned to mental health, for instance. Um, I don't think there's a large amount of money for mental health. But down at Otago University, Associate Professor David McBride says he supports anything that works. Well, the problem in New Zealand certainly is we don't have a, a health system designed to deal with military people. They're well catered for when they are in the military and the New Zealand Defence Force recognises the problems and they're dealing with the problems, but once they leave the military, there's no specialised health care service which will recognise this peculiar spectrum of, of illness that they may have. Without sort of jumping the gun, because you need the research to prove it's, it, it helps, but how do we help these people who've been through the counselling and had the drugs and have been through the, you know, the, the options that are available here and those limited options haven't helped them? What now for, the, for those people? Well, I think the best idea would be to follow the Australian Defence Force initiative um, with group therapy. I mean, it seems to be working. Uh, in the absence of um, better information, it's probably going to come down to uh, just trying it and seeing if it works. That's very unscientific, isn't it? <laughs> I, think, I, I think it's true. <laughs> if you do anything, it's going to make some difference. Dr McBride also serves in the Territorial Forces. He's concerned about the lack of information available about veterans once they've left the service. He says unless New Zealand is unlike any other country, there will be a proportion of veterans who are homeless, suffering financial problems or who've fallen foul of the police. The Australian Services Care Network is working on an education programme for GPs, nurses and others in the health and social sectors, which it hopes will help plug up some of the gaps veterans are falling through. Steve Shamey is the chair of the network and the general manager of Ranadale Veterans Home in Christchurch. At this year's Anzac Day commemorations, the home and hospital dedicated its new wing to Lance Corporal Jacinda Baker, who was killed by an improvised explosive device while serving in Afghanistan in 2012. On behalf of Renadale Trust, residents and staff, I wish to welcome families of our residents, friends and visitors to our 2016 Anzac Day service. Today's Anzac Day service... I believe it's right and fitting that we remember those men and women so long ago who left their shores, many in search of adventure, but soon to be replaced with the reality of war, 
carnage and sacrifice. But it's also very important, I think, this year, and I would like to make very special mention that we remember those who are currently serving in our New Zealand Defence Force or those who we would call our contemporary veteran group, those who have served in more recent conflicts in East Timor, in Afghanistan, in Iraq and many other places around the world. Mr Shamey says remembering those sacrifices shouldn't end when a veteran's military service does. Gaps occur right throughout the health system, particularly in primary health. It's about increasing awareness of general practice. And that's just not the GP. That can include the uh, practice nurse. It can include social services providers, Working Income New Zealand. It can um, include employers. You could argue the case, and I think uh, very strongly, that Each one of us has a responsibility to have an awareness that as a result of that service, there is an increased risk or increased prevalence of PTSD. And I'm not just talking about New Zealand, but I'm talking about any country that is freedom-loving and deploying uh, personnel or individuals or their citizens into theatres in order to preserve peace. Because after all, we need to realise that peace costs. There is a cost to maintaining peace. It's a cost that Bill Blakey and so many others like him know all too well. And it's a cost their families have had to bear alongside them. But Nancy Blakey hasn't given up yet. I'm at that stage where I just don't think we've exhausted all our avenues and I think the group therapy is something that I'm just fully supportive of him to to do. Um, How do we know that it's not going to work? How do I know that if this is the last avenue we've got to go down, that that might be the break that that we as a family need and other PTSD sufferers need. So you might not get back to the same man from 15 years ago, but you feel like there's definitely still room for improvement? Absolutely, and I think that's why, I mean, Bill says that he doesn't know why we've stuck around or whatever, and it, it's, it, it is that support. You don't, if someone's, it's an injury, it's just treated different. It's not a physical injury that you can see. Bill Blakey spent several weeks working with his psychologist to prepare for his trip to Australia. He's hoping his time there will help him overcome the frustration he feels that he's reached the end of his options in New Zealand and make him better prepared for the future. I don't think I'll work nine to five in an office again. I won't work in the military, but I want to work with veterans. Um, That's what I want to do. I, I want to be an advocate for veterans. Do you think they need one? I think they need more than one. Definitely. I'm Kate Pereira-Garcia and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to get in touch or share your thoughts on this programme, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at insight at radionz.co.nz or our Twitter handle is at insightrnz. Kate Pereira-Garcia wrote and presented that programme. Technical production was by Phil Benj. And if you don't want to miss out on Insights, subscribe on iTunes. (laughs) 